I appreciate the prayer that George just gave because this text does not flow from human wisdom. This text can only come to us from the wisdom of God. And so the sermon this morning, the message, the thoughts, the application, Lord willing, are going to be strictly from the mind of God to you from this text because there is no way that any human could ever come up with this kind of thinking and understanding of what it means to live and to glorify God. If it was our choice, we would avoid all suffering of all kinds, right? In fact, we love to have our comfort. In fact, our entire culture in many ways is built on a culture of comfort and ease. We just came through Christmas, and many of the gifts that were given and that were received were all about making one another feel comfortable and to enjoy this life. There's nothing inherently wrong with comfort or enjoying pleasures or the things of this life. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but, but we're bent towards avoiding all discomfort and all suffering and all opposition, so much so that even this morning... I would dare say there might be somebody here that there are certain individuals you walk in and you just know that there's people that may be difficult to talk to and so you sort of avoid them when you come in the doors, even at church on Sundays. We don't like to be uncomfortable. Maybe it's just because you don't know them or you don't know how to interact with them. We don't like to be uncomfortable. But Jesus said to his disciples and by extension to all disciples who will follow Christ, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now hear this. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And we've already seen in Peter, Peter says to follow Christ means that we will go on a path of suffering. Jesus continues to speak to his disciples and he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus says, remember this. Remember this, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus said. And then Jesus says to his disciples, and again, there's no reason for us to believe that anything has changed. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What happens when sheep are placed in the middle of wolves. They're attacked. Just the common way of life. Wolves attack sheep. So Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Live your lives as Christians wisely and towards goodness. Innocent as doves. And then, probably of the most famous words of Jesus, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the words that characterize those who are true followers of Christ. He goes on in verse 11 of Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Let me read that again and catch these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The text here in 1 Peter that we have today is nothing new. Peter is simply reiterating and teaching and helping these people to be encouraged and to renew their minds in the truths of Jesus himself that he taught while he was here on earth with us. The Apostle Paul saw this need as well. He cries out in Romans 8, Oh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall any of these separate us from the love of Christ? Paul cries out. And then he quotes a passage from Isaiah, and he says, As it is written, for your sake, for your sake, the Messiah's sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Brothers and sisters, this is the call to follow Christ. Whether it makes sense to us or not, the path to glory, as we'll see from this text, the path to glory, the path with fellow, to fellowship and eternal life with Christ is the path of suffering and opposition from the world. But Paul continues in Romans 8, and he says, no. Will we be separated from the love of Christ by these things? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who loved us. Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, referring to his persecutions, referring to his suffering, for proclaiming the name of Christ, for proclaiming the gospel, for living out a righteous life. Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. They weren't his marks. He wasn't suffering just for being Paul. He wasn't facing opposition and persecution just for being the Apostle Paul. He was facing persecution and suffering for identifying with Jesus. And then, of course, we have Peter. And we read the text this morning from chapter 4, and we'll read it as we go through again. But let me remind you of what Peter has already said in his letter in chapter 1. Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, in verse 6. In this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the fact that we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. And you are being kept by God's power. We rejoice in this, that we have an inheritance with God. You rejoice, though, although, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So we're rejoicing even in the midst of trials. And then he says this. There's a purpose, though, to these trials. 
It's that you will be tested. And that the genuineness of your faith would come forth. And this tested genuineness of your faith is actually more precious than gold, he says. Because gold perishes. But your faith, as it's tested through trials, through suffering, through identifying with Christ, is actually more precious. And God views it that way. And in the end, he says in verse 7, it will be found, it will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are, these are just massive truths that when we go through suffering as Christians, Peter says this, when you endure through suffering, when you endure through testing, and you identify with Christ, and you don't quit, and you don't give in, and you don't deny Christ, and you don't move away from the gospel, he says, what's going to happen? The result is this. At the end of all time, there's going to be praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, because you endured as a Christian through suffering. Wow. Would you have written that? Is this our wisdom? Of course not. This is only from the mind of God. So he says, again, Peter says, now who is there to harm you in chapter 3? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, beloved, now we are here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved. Love that term of affection. And Peter's, Peter's writing to believers that he's probably never met many of them. He's writing to believers. Some some are actually in suffering, as he writes, most likely. And some are being threatened with suffering for their faith in Christ. And he writes to them with this term of of affection, beloved. Brothers and sisters. Loved ones. He cares. He's writing this section in a very pastoral way, in a way that is meant to encourage and uplift his brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't a text to beat them down. This is a text to encourage. He starts with, Beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Rejoice. What a counterintuitive thought. Suffering comes, and we rejoice. You have your finger there in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and would you turn with me back to Acts chapter 5, just real briefly. I just want to read just a few verses. As you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of this story from Acts 5, where the apostles, and specifically Peter and John, are serving, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and they're, they're healing people with the power of God, and they're seeing the gospel on display both in their works and in their words. And, and the unbelieving Jews of the area rise up against them and throw them in jail. And, and in the night, an angel comes and lets them out of jail. And they come the next morning looking for them to try them. And they can't find them in the jail. And they're like, where do these guys go? And they're sort of scared. And they're freaking out, running around the town trying to find where did Peter and John and these guys go. And they find them proclaiming the gospel again. And so they bring them again. And they... they they want to arrest them, but they're fearful because they've seen these works and they're real and people have observed it. And they're fearful of the people that if they harm them too much, 
the people will rise up against them as these Jewish leaders. And they have this pseudo-trial. And one of the wise rulers, and I don't know his spiritual state, the text doesn't tell us, but in verse 33 of chapter 5, Gamaliel offers his advice. He says, leave him alone. Leave him alone, because if this is of God, you will not be able to stop it. And if it's of men, it will slowly dissipate away. And so the Jewish leaders take this counsel, sort of, and they decide to beat Peter and John and then release them and command them not to speak in the name of Christ again, which, of course, they disregard. But here are the words. Look in with me in Acts 5, verse 40 to 42. Here is the perspective of these apostles, of these disciples. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council. Now get this. They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? The name of Christ. Verse 42, and every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching in, uh, teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. See, Peter's, Peter's not giving us counsel and advice here that he's unwilling to take himself. Peter's already walked through this road. He's still walking down this path as he writes. He's giving to us counsel. He's giving to us insight. He's giving to us the wisdom of God and the experience even of his own spiritual state as he has experienced the, the deliverance of God. He's experienced the joy in Christ, what it means to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. So Peter turns to us and he says, Beloved, friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised as you follow Christ, as you do good, as you seek to exalt Christ in your life and, and set Him up as Lord and Savior, reigning supreme in your life, where you say no to sin and you say yes to righteousness, as you cut a narrow path through this culture, which in every way, is some, in some ways, is attacking us every day, so don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes on you. Don't be surprised. Remember the words of Jesus. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If you speak for me, they're going to speak against you. Don't be surprised when they persecute you and revile you. Why? Because this is what they did to the prophets before you. Don't be surprised. I've experienced it, Peter says. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Unjust suffering will come for true followers of Jesus. And here's the main point of these verses. As countercultural and counterintuitive as it is, Peter wants us to get this one thing from verse 13. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. That's the one point of my sermon this morning, because I think that's Peter's one point of this text. Are we done? No, no. We have more verses to go through. I know you're excited. But that's the one point. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. 
And what Peter does in the rest of these verses, he lays out all the reasons why. Because, because our minds need to be reshaped. In fact, one of the songs we sang this morning, it, it lists out all these questions. Is, is God only good when things are going right? This is the natural question that we ask and that we feel. It's easy to trust God when things are going well. It's easy to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus when we have everything we desire and we have good health and all of our prayers seem to be answered in the way that we want them to be answered. And everything in life seems to be going smoothly. But is God good only when things are going good? Or is God still good when suffering and opposition comes. And so Peter knows that he needs to help us. He needs to reshape our thinking. Our minds need to be renewed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the wisdom of God. So he gives us these truths. And some of them, it's very simple in some ways, but some of them challenge our deepest and core beliefs. So he says, don't be surprised. It's not strange. It's not strange. This is what happens to people who follow Christ. But look at verse 13. He says, rejoice. But why? Rejoice when suffering comes upon you to test you, verse 12, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. See, here's the reality. When suffering comes against you, it's not that we're rejoicing simply in suffering. We're not just looking for pain. We're not rejoicing in the suffering itself. We're rejoicing in the fact that we are being identified with Christ. You are identified with Christ. Rejoice insofar or to the degree that you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice now. Because if you rejoice now in the fact that you're identified with Christ, and that brings suffering, and you rejoice in that identification, that connection, that union with Christ now, here's the reality, that in the end, when Christ returns, you'll have greater cause for rejoicing. Look at that. The last part, he says that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And why is that? Well, really, this is the second reason. Because if we identify with Christ now in His sufferings, We'll be identified with Christ in His glory. And the bottom line is this. The glory of Christ, in the end, when He comes back, will be our glory. His glory is our glory, just like His sufferings are our sufferings. And without His sufferings and being being identified with His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His righteous life that brought suffering, if we don't identify with that now, we won't be identified with His glory in the future. But if we are, if we rejoice now, and we identify with Christ now in his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his life, so then in the future when Christ comes back, we will be identified with his glory. His glory will be our glory. And we come to that point and we can kind of ho and hum about that. It's like, okay, whatever. But Peter's already told us a couple things about this glory. He's already told us that that when we endure suffering the right way and we give praise to God through it and we rejoice through it, that even that act of worship as we endure and remain faithful to Christ, that, that God is being glorified. Whether we see it or not, God is being glorified and the unbelieving world is seeing that and they're either being drawn to that or rejecting it. And in that, God is glorified. 
And as we saw earlier, that, that when we endure hardship and we do good and, and our lives are so full of goodness and righteousness and the unbelieving world comes and tries to attack us over this and they see that there's nothing for them to attack us about except for our goodness and we endure through that suffering, we endure through that opposition, that some of those people will actually come to faith in Christ. They will glorify God with their lives. So those are two aspects. But, but here we also have the aspect in mind of Christ, when he comes back, his glory is going to be on display in a way that's never been on display before. And if our glory is wrapped up as his glory, because our suffering is wrapped up in his suffering, then what kind of hope do we have? Because this Savior is going to come back. And just imagine with me for a second what this kind of glory is going to look like. We have such little minds, and we're so caught up in our own glory and the comforts of this life that it's hard for us to imagine the glory of Christ. But if we move away from our small ideas of our domesticated version of God, of a God who fits in our little box, and a little God who does what we want him to do when we ask him to do it, and we move away from that, we begin to understand who this God is and the glory that will come. And just think of Revelation. Yes, Jesus is the lamb that was slain, but he is also the lion who is conquering and will devour all who reject him. All of the evil, all the opposition, all those who rejected him and put him on the cross, Satan himself, this lion will conquer and devour. Yes, God is the very definition and essence of love. He is. But he is also the very definition and essence of holiness. In this holiness that he is. His glory of his holiness, as one author has compared it to, it's dangerous. It's like plutonium. You breathe in just a small, minuscule amount and you will die. Here's the holiness of God. No human, no sinful human can stand and survive in his presence. Yes, he is the living water that gives life, but he's also the consuming fire that judges and will consume all who are unrepentant before him. Yes, he is the wonderful counselor, but he's also the Alpha and Omega who demands obedience to his every word. Yes, he is the good shepherd, but he's also the sovereign Lord who will return riding on a white horse with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. And he will crush all the powers of Satan, evil and sin, and all humanity who stand opposed to him, and they will give him glory. They will worship him. They will acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords because he's judging them. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. If we identify with Christ and his sufferings now, we will identify with his glory then. And we will reign with him. We will be not only spectators, but participants in this eternal ruling of the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. We will be vindicated with him.
Peter says, look, praise him now. Rejoice now. Glorify him now because when he returns, his glory will be revealed in a way that's never been seen. And you will partake in it. So rejoice. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter then makes it even more explicit in verse 14 and 15. He says this, you're blessed. Wait a second. You're blessed? Look at it, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Your wisdom or God's wisdom? Again, Peter seems to be picking up the very words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But Peter defines this blessing very specifically. He says this, You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is, the, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the very presence of God. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, here's, here's the reality. When you, when you face that kind of opposition and, and suffering and persecution, God pours out His blessing, His Spirit, in a unique, experiential way for you. And it's no coincidence that Peter quotes again a passage from Isaiah which prophesies how the Spirit of God is going to rest on the Messiah, who when he faces suffering, will endure to the end and will experience the joy and the blessing of the Father for submitting his life to the will of the Father and enduring the shame of the cross for his people. But as a side note, it seems, in verse 15... Peter wants to make this very clear to us. Don't confuse sinful suffering with righteous suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Wait, let's run through that list one more time. Some of those are pretty serious. A murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Somebody who's constantly messing with other people's business. And maybe in this context, what Peter has in mind is that Sometimes as Christians, we might stir up suffering or problems for us because we're not tactful. And we're actually not operating in love. We're according to just common human courtesy. We're bold in our evangelism, yes, but we don't use a lot of tact or wisdom. And maybe we're trying to meddle with people's lives in a way that's not appropriate. And Peter says, hey, be aware of this. It's possible for you to do this. And that kind of suffering is not truly righteous suffering. So don't be confused. Don't be confused that if you suffer for sin, that that's supposed to be righteous or unrighteous suffering. It's not. We should be turning away from sin. As we do that, we glorify God. God is not glorified when we suffer for sin. God is only glorified, Christ is only magnified when we give our lives and suffer for doing good, for pursuing righteousness. And as a result of that, suffering comes. Verse 16. Peter again encourages us. He says, yet, again, to make it clear, if anyone suffers as a Christian, and that's the focus, if you suffer as a Christian for following Christ, for doing what's good and righteous, 
Let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. There is no shame in suffering for following Jesus. There is no shame. Despite what the world might say, despite how they talk down to you, Jesus Christ faced all the true shame of sin on the cross. He's our example. Remember Hebrews 12. The writer challenges us, look to Jesus. The founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to him. Look to him. And, and then he says, and consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that when you face that kind of hostility, you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. But you'll continue to reject sin. You'll continue to follow Christ. So we rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. You rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ because there is no shame. There is no shame in that. Is there shame for suffering for sin? Yes. But Christ has absorbed all of that shame for us so that when we suffer with Him and for Him, there is no shame. There's only joy and glory as we look to Him. And then we realize, in verse 17, and this is probably the most difficult section of this passage, we have to come to realize that this kind of suffering is actually at the will of God. It's actually according to his design. That's very clear in verse 19, where Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... So, it's very clear that there's a kind of suffering, there's a kind of trial and opposition that God allows according to his will for believers. And we go back to chapter 1 again, and we, we see, remember the thoughts about how there's a trial or testing that's coming to purify our faith, to test us to see if it's genuine or not. And in verse 17, we have these words, For it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what then will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The implication here is that God is judging all humanity already. We are in the last days. Now, we aren't facing the final judgment yet, but this is a part of what God is doing. He is already judging the world, and he's starting with the people of God. Hence the word, the the house of God, or the household of God. Which is why then in the next section, in chapter 5, where we'll be next week, Peter then turns his attention to the elders of the household of God, to the church of God, and challenges them to be leading well and to be leading properly. Why? Because judgment is beginning. And not condemnation and judgment, but, but a discerning kind of judgment. And the idea here is that as the fire of the trial of God is falling on all humanity, there are 10,000 things going on, but here Peter has in mind two very clear things. The fire of the judgment of God is falling, even now. Spiritual reality, what's going on. And the people of God are facing this, this fiery trial through opposition to their faith. And what's the result? The result is that true believers are rising to the top. Their genuine faith is being purified and nurtured, and their roots of faith are, are growing deep down into the grace of God. 
And they're becoming stronger and more faithful and they're growing. At the same time, to reference the parable of the seed and sower, there's some who might look like believers. They might have had a spurt of life, as so, so it seems. But when the persecution and the suffering comes, that life is quickly quenched out and it's revealed that there truly was no life in them at all. So true believers are rising in this testing. And here in the text, verse 17 and 18, Peter writes, and if the righteous are scarcely saved, or if they're saved with difficulty, that is, they're saved through the difficulty of suffering and persecution and opposition, it's not that God barely saved them. No, it's not that at all. It's that to follow Christ and to be saved, there's difficulty. What then will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the answer is in our minds already. Eternal judgment. No life. If the fire of God's judgment falls on them, the reality is there. They have not obeyed the gospel of God. They have rejected Jesus. God's judgment on them is that they are lacking life. They are lacking faith. They are not followers. And their end is sure. It's a very sobering reality that Peter brings to us. But again, he's bringing this as a matter of hope and encouragement for us. Why? Because even though the opposition and difficulty is here, what is our end? We will be delivered. We'll be saved. And this kind of suffering is according to the will of God. He's not capricious. He's not haphazard. He's designed it very carefully. And so for us, we know that there will be a time and a duration and a space of this testing, and it will end. It will end. And the final truth that we look at in verse 19, and it's like, in one sense, Peter summarizes the the whole of of his letter in just this one verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to the faithful Creator while continuing to do good. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Entrust your life to a faithful creator. Because he's the creator, he's the one that can judge. Because he's the creator, he's the one who is faithful to his creation. Because he's the creator, he has power over all of life, even in our death. He can be trusted. Through Christ, he can be trusted just as Christ entrusted himself to the Father in 1 Peter 2, as we saw. He endured to the end. And the point is, if we are truly going to be faithful and trust this creator God who has control over all of life, the way that's going to be displayed is that we continue to do good. Again, counterintuitive, right? Hey, suffering comes, opposition comes, persecution comes. Why? For doing good, for living life as a Christian. And Peter says, Keep trusting God and keep doing good. So the very things that are bringing suffering and persecution on your life, keep doing those things. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Keep looking to Christ. He will deliver you. Rejoice. Rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Keep doing good and following your faithful Creator.
as we close, there's a couple things that Peter has in mind. They're not explicit in this text, but I'm pretty sure that in Peter's mind, he's assuming these things, and I'm assuming these for us this morning. If suffering and persecution is going to come, if we're going to share in this kind of suffering, then, then there's several things that are going to be evident and needful in our lives. Peter assumes that you already are actively doing good. Because if you weren't already actively doing good, then the suffering for the name of Christ wouldn't be coming. Now, in our sort of Judeo-Christian culture, sometimes it's easier here because the lines in the sand have not been drawn so clearly as other parts of the world. But there are lines being drawn, some very clearly and some more subtly. But here's the question. Are you, are you actively doing good in following Christ? Are you actively living out your faith? Peter assumes something else. Are you actively proclaiming the gospel? Are you actively doing good, living out the gospel, and are you actively proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers? These are two assumptions that a Peter is making. Because if it's not for living out the gospel, and if it's not for proclaiming the gospel, then we can live very quiet and easy, comfortable lives. So are you. Thirdly, Peter assumes that you are actively growing in your love and worship of Jesus. Is he becoming everything to you? Is your daily life, are your decisions, is your life shaped around loving Jesus and and pursuing him and recognizing him as your Lord and Savior? So, are you actively doing good? Are you actively proclaiming the gospel of Jesus? And are you actively growing in your love and worship of Jesus? These are the things Peter assumes. These are the things Peter assumes. So the question for us this morning is what will we do with this text? Don't be surprised, Peter says. To the degree, to the degree that we have suffered with Christ, shared in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Is there any reason for us to suffer with Christ? How will we respond today?